Well, take your Bibles and open them to Mark's last chapter, the last chapter of Mark, chapter 16. And we will study what really is our last and final pure exposition in Mark. I'll explain a little bit more about that later. Mark chapter 16. I'll be looking at the first eight verses this morning, and let me read that just to put it in our minds. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him, that is, Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. They said to him, he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Death is final, universal, and irreversible. I looked it up, and the current death rate is 100%. It's common knowledge that it's final and universal and irreversible. The Bible even tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that it is appointed for men once to die and after that the judgment. No medical advances, no fervent prayers, have prevented the eventual death of anyone we know of or about. Yes, I am aware that Jesus raised the dead. But those situations were definitely outliers to the natural course of our experience, right? No one has ever seen a resurrection from the dead. Oh, we may have seen or heard of hearts stopping for a while, even minutes sometimes, and there being a resuscitation but no one who's been buried for three days and then risen back to life. There is no natural way to avoid death. I don't want to break anyone's contract with your gems, but there is no way to put off the inevitable. It's like that one mortician who signed all of his correspondence, eventually yours. This was the experience of Jesus' followers as well. 
they had seen Jesus raise the dead. Many of his followers knew his friend Lazarus. But they knew that death was final, universal, and irreversible. Even Lazarus and Jairus' daughter would die eventually. Death holds a terrible, horrific, life-changing, inevitable power over everyone. The writer to the Hebrews says that it's, it's that power, the fear of death, that actually makes us slaves to that fear all the days of our life. Put yourself, just for a quick moment, in the, in the sandals and the togas and the robes of these followers of Jesus. On Friday, they had seen their Lord unjustly tried, beaten, scourged, bloodied, nails put through his hands, a crown of thorns on his head, and for six hours watched him torturously die. They put all their hope in Jesus. They had banked on the fact that he was indeed the Messiah. They had believed the fact that he said he was the Son of God making himself deity himself. They'd seen the miracles, heard his teaching, experienced his love, and they must have been asking on that very long Sabbath day on that Saturday, in between Friday and Sunday, were they wrong? Have they gotten it wrong? Have they misinterpreted? Is it over? He's dead. He's dead. We don't think of Jesus like this as contemporary Christians on this side of the New Testament. They had several hours to contemplate the fact that their Lord was gone, dead. As much as they had listened to him, though, before, they had not paid close enough attention Mark has been so careful to put this breadcrumb trail in front of us all throughout his gospel to let us know that this was not going to be a cataclysmic end to this man's life. This wasn't going to be the end of the Son of God. This should have been no surprise to them. Mark 8.31, Jesus began to teach them, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. Is there any part of that that's difficult to understand? Mark chapter 9, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, telling them as they're walking from Jericho up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of of men. They will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. Pretty clear? Mark chapter 10. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed. Those who followed were fearful. Again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, men, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the hand of the chief priests and scribes, will be condemned to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. 
Despite these clear predictions, the disciples and followers of the Lord seem to have had no expectation that he would come back from the dead. This entire scene that we're about to look at indicates they were going to make his burial permanent. Kostenberger and Taylor write, if Matthew had ended at chapter 27, Mark at chapter 15, Luke at chapter 23, John at chapter 19, these are all the narratives of Jesus' death, this would indeed be the end of the story. Jesus would have been just another failed messianic pretender who clashed with the Roman Empire and paid the ultimate price for his folly, end quote. But the cross and death and burial of the Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, were not the end of the story. Again, just think about this moment. The disciples and the followers of the Lord were disillusioned. They were discouraged. They were disappointed. They were even doubtful. But Jesus' resurrection from the dead is intended by God to end all discouragement, all disillusionment for them and for us. Here at the greatest moment of sorrow, we find the greatest source of hope. And that's how the resurrection is viewed the rest of the New Testament. It might surprise you to know that there's far more said about the resurrection in the rest of the New Testament than even the cross. You have to have the cross or you don't have the resurrection, but the emphasis is on the resurrection. Paul put on trial for believing the resurrection. Peter persecuted and beaten for preaching the resurrection. And yet it's intended for our hope. So we're going to look at this from the perspective of Mark and what he's doing for us and with us and discover together two sources of hope for the discouraged believer. Two sources of hope for the discouraged believer, and these sources are anchored in Christ's rising from the dead. It was true for them. It's true for us. I think it's exactly why Mark, Matthew, John, Luke all finish the gospel with this. It's why Jesus, God rather, accents and punctuates with an exclamation point Jesus' life and death with the resurrection. It is the single greatest source of our hope for every problem and our hope for our greatest problem, which is dying. So let's break this down together. The first source in the first six verses is hope from the angelic witnesses, the empty tomb. Hope from the angelic witnesses, namely the empty tomb. Now, a little context here. When you try to stitch together the four accounts of the resurrection from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it can be challenging. I just want to tell you that. It's it's really interesting. For example, how many women went to the tomb? They all tell us different ladies show up. How many angels were there? Two of the uh, uh, writers say there are two, and the two say there are one. To whom did Jesus appear? What did he say? And for how long? And in what order? And what did the angels say? If you look at all, if you answer these questions with all four Gospels, you need all four Gospels to answer these questions. 
But each gospel writer uses certain particular details to make the point that he is making through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Answering all those questions is a worthy study. I've already determined that at some point in the future you're going to hear the harmonization of the, the resurrection accounts. That will be a wonderful study and we'll do that in the future. But for now, for this morning... I want you to rest in the confidence that there are no contradiction in these accounts, just different accounts with particular details. So our intent, as has been the case in most of these events, is to listen to Mark, to hear his voice, and not necessarily to study the whole event of the resurrection. I will be leaving out some details with which you are very familiar, but those are in other Gospels and for another time. We want to listen to what the Holy Spirit has said to us through Mark this morning. So let's follow along in his narrative in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, very, very, very scriptures integrity is on the line. Very important statement there. This is an important time stamp. The Sabbath was over at sunrise of Sunday morning, the first day of the week. Now, in our last study of Mark... Mark was careful to let us know that Jesus was in the grave before the Sabbath began on Friday afternoon before the sun set, making him in the day, in the grave on Friday. That's significant. The reason is Jesus said he would rise after three days. We have to mark three days. Joseph of Arimathea buries him on Friday, day one. He is in the grave all day Saturday on the Sabbath, day two. The Sabbath ended at sunrise on Sunday morning, meaning he rose after the crack of dawn. He was in the grave, at least for a short amount of time, on day three. After three days, he rose. Mark 8, 31, after three days. Mark 9, 31, he will rise three days later. Mark 10, 32 to 34, tell us that and three days later he will rise again. The author, in other words, leaves no doubt in anyone's mind that Jesus' prophecy came to fulfillment. The length of his death, the fulfillment of his word, all were tied into Mark's exacting details. He leaves no doubt about the timing of Jesus' resurrection, the length of his death, and the fulfillment of his word. Now, Mark is also very intentional to come back to these women whom he mentioned at the end of chapter 15. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, a different Mary than we saw in the last verse of chapter 15, but another Mary nonetheless. There are are a host of women here at the moment after Jesus' resurrection. We know these women, some of these women were at the cross. They watched Jesus suffer. These two women in particular, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, these three women were at the crucifixion. They actually end up backing up. They end up a distance away. But when Jesus actually breathes his last breath, at least two of them marked where he had been buried in 1547. They said, okay, we've got we to gotta remember that grave with that stone. That was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. The Mary here in verse 1 is the same Mary mentioned back in chapter 15, verse 40. Same descriptor, the mother of James. 
And Mark's point is to assure us, listen, that the same women who were present at the burial are present at the tomb. They weren't mistaken. They didn't come to the wrong place. John also footnotes that Mary, the mother of Jesus himself, was there in John 19, 26. And Luke comments that Joanna and other women were also there as well in Luke 24. Now, as I made note last week, and this is so important. Ladies, this is really, really encouraging, I think. The presence of these women, the courage of these women, and the devotion of these women is important to Mark and important for us, important to the other gospel writers to tell us. Where were the other men? We'll find out in a minute. John tells us they were hiding, scared to death. Not these ladies. Not these women. And in a climate where people are looking at Christianity in general and the Bible in particular and accusing us and it of being anti-women and masculinely dominated, I think Mark, through the Holy Spirit, understood that we all needed to know that the men were running for their lives and the women stayed faithful to the end. I can see you smiling behind your masks, ladies. What a gift. These women were amazing and faithful and were willing possibly to pay the ultimate sacrifice of condemnation and even death for their loyalty to the Lord. They brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. They were going to finish what Joseph of Arimathea had begun on Friday afternoon. He hastily buried him. He had to be in the grave before the Sabbath, not only to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus himself, but also because no uh, uh, dead body could remain on a cross over the Sabbath. This was not to embalm Jesus. These spices weren't. That was an Egyptian thing. This was simply to provide strong enough perfume to cover up the stench of decay. It was a way to honor the dead so that people didn't walk by the grave in grief and be overwhelmed by the smell. That's what these spices were. It was out of love. It was out of honor. And these women came back to finish. They had their own spices in addition to what Joseph had applied on Friday. Verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, that's an important marker again, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. See the careful uh, time marker, time stamp that he's putting on this? Friday before the sun sets, in the grave Saturday in the Sabbath, after the sun had risen, on the third day they show up. He continues his precise time stamping. It's early Sunday morning, and note the important detail that the sun has now risen indicates these women must have gotten to the tomb very soon after Jesus rose from the dead. Just missed him. On the way, they're talking to each other. You can see it. Sun is just rising. They're walking down the road. They're going to the tomb. They have this tremendously burdensome task ahead of them. But there's a problem. 
And we find out this problem in verse 3. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? How are they going to solve that? By the way, back in Mark chapter 15, verse 46, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. These were typically long, narrow holes for a body, and there was a track in front of that, and a round stone would be on the side. They could roll it into place. Right in front of the tomb, there was a little gap in the cement where it would sit and rest in place and be permanent. Why was this a problem? Because these, we have many of these Stones are laying around Israel. We've seen them. You can see them today when you travel over there. They were typically between four and six feet in diameter, weighing between one and two tons, two to 4,000 pounds. So you can imagine this group of ladies saying, I think we're going to need some help. Too heavy. They couldn't budget. Where were the men... Well, John chapter 20, verse 19 says, they were hiding, afraid for their lives. Thanks, men. They had probably, the women had hoped for a worker or someone who was in the area, a gardener, to help roll away the stone, to open the tomb. But finally, upon arrival, they look, and the problem has been solved. Verse 4, looking up, from the distance, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away. And I love this footnote. Although it was extremely large, one to two tons large, entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. The way these graves were set up, and if you take the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as the likely site of Jesus' burial in the tomb, which I think is the best way to do it, you can see that there are two parts of this chamber. There was an outer chamber, and there was an inner chamber. The inner chamber was small enough just for a body to be laid into and hewn out of direct stone. The outer chamber was a little staging area, which they would prepare the body. I think that's where they walk into there's a guy sitting there wearing a white robe, a bright white robe. I've told you many times, white, white was a hard thing in the ancient world. There was no bleach. And once you wore something and it was uh, worn a while, it, it would get filthy and dirty and you would never get it quite white again. So to see someone in dazzling white was a big deal and that man was like this. In the announcement of, of Jesus' birth, we also see a man in white. This is an angel. The other gospel writers tell us this was an angel. He was sitting there, obviously waiting for these women to talk to them. I just wonder about this angel. Can you imagine getting that assignment from the father? Okay, come here. You're going to go down. Some of his followers are going to come. They're going to be torn up with grief and you get to tell them this. He's sitting there on the right. There's a specific detail. He's on the right. They walk in, boom, on the right. He's sitting there 
And they were amazed. What an interesting word, amazed. It means dazzled, bedazzled, overwhelmed, terrified, amazed, curious. They walk in and they are shocked to unexpectedly find someone sitting there. The other gospel writers include that this was indeed an angel. He has rolled away the stone, Matthew 28, 2 says, and now he's gone into the outer burial and sat down. Quick footnote, Luke does tell us there were two angels here, but I think Matthew and Mark both focus just on this one who spoke. Verse 6. He said to them, do not be what they just were, bedazzled, amazed, curious, overwhelmed, shocked, scared. Don't be that way. And then he identifies and solves their curiosity and problem. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Literally in the Greek, it's the crucified one. The emphasis is on the one who was executed, whom you saw suffer and die on Friday. And then he anticipates their question. We're looking for Jesus. We can see the stone is gone and he's not there. So the angel refers to Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. No question is who they, they're not at the wrong address, in other words. Where's the body? Three words. He has risen. I love the tradition of our church on Easter's. I typically say, he has risen, and you say, he has risen indeed. He has risen. He is not here. Stop looking for him among the dead. Behold, and then he gives them a tour. Come here, look. Here's the place where they laid him. John tells us that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, made his bed, folded up all the grave clothes very neatly and left them there. Moms, you can use that if you want to. He says, look, here's where he was, and he's not here. The most amazing words they had ever heard in their ears. He is risen. He is not here. Look, proof, see where they laid him. They're rocked with this news. Just imagine, we, we're so used in a creedal church where we believe the, the Apostles' Creed, we, we rehearse our mission statement, we think about these things, we rehearse these things often. Think about them. They went to make his burial permanent, only to find out he's not dead. He's alive. They are rocked with the news that Jesus is alive. The angelic witness to these women ought to be an angelic witness to us in our difficulty, disillusionment, and discouragement. There's something bigger than all of our problems and our biggest problem, namely death. And that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Which brings us to a second source for our encouragement. And this is really the crux of the whole passage. Hope from the Lord himself, a future meeting. Hope from the Lord himself, a future meeting. It's interesting, if you study all of the accounts of Jesus and the angels talking to men and women after the resurrection, in every single conversation, a command is given. A responsibility is laid out. You have to go do something. The angel tells these women, go, don't stay here. You've already had the tour. No reason to look for him. He's not here. Go tell his disciples. Tell them what? That he's risen. And two of the best words in the Gospel of Mark and Peter. And Peter. Tell them this. He's going ahead of you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. They're given a mission. Go tell the disciples that Jesus is alive. Again, back to these women. Who gets the great opportunity and responsibility and privilege to be the first announcers of the greatest event in human history? It's these ladies. By the way, it's for another time, but they weren't well received when they told the disciples this at first. They weren't believed. A most special instruction especially Peter. This gives us some indication of the love that Jesus had for Peter. No doubt the father, maybe Jesus himself, had instructed this angel with this specific little footnote, make sure you tell Peter. Tell Peter I'm alive. What was the last interaction that Peter and Jesus had? Mark told us in the last chapter. He denied him. Peter denied the Lord only to make eye contact with Jesus afterwards. And he went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine Friday night and Saturday night in the heart of Peter? Just imagine the grief, the guilt, the horrified heart that he had that the Lord he genuinely loved and served and said he would die for. He had denied three times and the last contact he had with him was that eye contact where he was a failure. There's this special instruction. Make sure Peter knows. I think that tells us something of the Lord's love for Peter, his grace, his forgiveness. At the end of John, we find out that there's a full restoration of Peter. The Lord doesn't say, why did you deny me? Why weren't you faithful? He tells him, go be a pastor. Go shepherd my sheep. Look, though, at the end of verse 7. This is really encouraging. Jesus, this is a little important feature, in fact. Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. We talked 
about this before. Jesus had already said, after I die, remember at the end of the Olivet Discourse, I'm going to go, I will, I will die, and then I will go ahead of you and meet you in Galilee. Galilee's several days journey, 100 miles north. But he sets up a meeting. No daytimers, no iPhones, no iCalendars. They need to get north to Galilee. That's where he's going to do his final instruction and get them ready before he ascends back to heaven. Verse 7 drips with grace and forgiveness. John will give the account of Peter's full restoration and then he will later tell us that Peter's restoration would involve Peter's commission up in Galilee. What does this have to do with you and me? That he said he would meet them in Galilee? Jesus, think about this, scheduled a meeting after his resurrection with his followers in the future at another place. John chapter 14, we find out he has gone to prepare a place in his father's house for other believers, for other followers, you you and me. There's an important parallel here. Just as Jesus instructed the disciples, meet me in Galilee, he has promised us he will meet us in the Father's house in heaven. We have the same hope they had of seeing the resurrected Savior and having all of our discouragement, doubt, disillusionment, problems dissolved in that day. He has gone to prepare a place for us. He met them in Galilee. He'll meet us in heaven. In John 17, he prays, Father, I pray that they be with me where I am and can behold my glory with you. I love telling folks at Christian funerals that in that high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed... If you're a believer, Jesus prayed for your death because he knew that through that we would be with him and it would be good. Then comes verse 8, which has caused no small amount of consternation to so many commentators. These ladies, they went out ran, fled from the tomb. It's the word for sprint. Why? For trembling and astonishment had gripped them. They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. They would say something to someone eventually. He's talking about as they're fleeing, they didn't stop to say, hey, guess what I just saw. They were overwhelmed. The Greek words here are telling They were trembling physically, awestruck, astonished. The astonished really literally means ecstatic. Matthew tells us they were also joyful. They were awestruck. They were afraid. They were terrified. They were flooded. If you just found out someone who was dead was alive, wouldn't you be a little freaked out as well? They were. were, All the emotions, joy, terror. What What if we see him? Now, a little altitude is important here. I just want to grab some other 
data points from other texts just to give you a little, little handle on this. Jesus would meet them in Galilee, but not until after he had met them before that. He would meet, meet hundreds in Galilee in Matthew 28.10. Here in the Judea area, he appeared to Mary Magdalene in John 20 and the other women in Matthew 28. He did show up to these women and say, it is me. He met Peter personally in Luke 24, 34. He spoke to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He appeared to 10 of the apostles in the upper room in John 20, verse 19, here in Judea. He met with all 11 of them, including Thomas, who wasn't with the 10 earlier, who doubted at that moment, and he proved to him he was indeed Jesus and alive in John 20, verse 26. He met... When the men arrived back in Galilee, the Lord appeared to them, to seven of them, on the shore of the lake. They didn't recognize him at first, and then they jump in the water. Peter does and swims to him. That's John 21. He later appears to more than 500 disciples, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6, on a mountain. That's where he commissioned the apostles to take the great commission to the ends of the earth in Matthew 28. He also appeared to his half-brother James. Can you imagine that meeting? James, who grew up with Jesus... Apparently, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, believes because he saw Jesus alive from the dead. Then a final time to the 11 apostles on the Mount of Olives just before his ascension to heaven in Acts 1. In Acts 1, verses 2 and 3, this is interesting. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, this wasn't just one and done. He was there for more than a month talking with them, answering questions, finishing out their theology. Historical fact. How important is the resurrection? Can I be as encouraging and as fearful as I possibly can? If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you cannot be saved and go to heaven. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is in vain also. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And then lastly, in verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life alone, we of all men are to be pitied. I hope when you share the gospel that the resurrection is a part of your presentation. Oh, sure, we need to pay, talk about he, he paid for our sins and his death on the cross. Very important theology. But if he stayed in the grave, we are still in our sins Romans 4 said he rose for our justification. Now, a little preview on next week. I think that the historical textual evidence indicates that that's the end of the book of Mark in verse 8. Most of your Bibles, probably all of your Bibles, have either a footnote or brackets around verses 9 and following. You see that? There's a reason for that. And next week, I want, I want to talk to you about that. 
Uh, we're not going to edit God or edit his word and take things out, but we're going to talk about why it's important to understand what that section in your Bible means and why it's there and perhaps why it's questionable as scripture. Listen, I'll walk away with this text with this. We should conclude with the centurion what Mark began with. Jesus is the son of God. He would not let his son suffer decay. Secondly, the resurrection is to be the greatest source of hope for every believer then and now. If Jesus is alive, listen, if Jesus is alive, that is the ultimate game changer. Life cannot be different if you know that Jesus is alive. And then a third kind of takeaway is, is Peter. Go tell Peter. Peter's restoration gives us hope and promise that we cannot send ourselves to a position or place beyond God's grace. You can't. A few years later, after Jesus had raised from the dead and gone back to heaven, his best friend on this earth, John the Apostle, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. I've seen the cave where he likely was, probably where he wrote down the book of Revelation. And when he showed up, saw John... John says in Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. He placed his hand on me, his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And listen to how Jesus introduces himself to John. I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and of Hades. He purchased that right, not only through his death, but he conquered death by rising from it.